fellowship. A warm welcome to all of you in Crossroad International Church. And my, for those of us who uh, haven't met, my name is Jason, and I'm serving as the summer pastor here at CIC. And what we've been doing over the summer is going through a series called The Grand Story of Scripture, The Grand Narrative. So all the way from Genesis to Revelation in a couple of months. And we've talked about how the big picture is kind of like building a puzzle. Understanding the Bible is like this massive, complicated puzzle, and we are trying to build the outline through which we have a frame of reference for the rest of our Bible studies. And so we have looked at it, if we jump to the first slide, the early chapters of Genesis tell us that the setting of the story is the heavens and the earth. We saw that the purpose, uh, we saw that God is the main character, or in narrative terminology, he's the hero. And every story has a hero with a desire. And God's desire is that his image bearers would rule the world on his behalf. And just like any story, the hero's desire is blocked by some kind of problem. If you watch a movie, if you read a novel, that's what makes a story. And the story revolves around how the hero overcomes that problem. Now, in Genesis 3, we found that indeed there is a problem. There's an enemy a serpent, and the man and the woman, the image bearers of God, gave their rule of the world over to that serpent. So now we have a serpent ruling the world. But the story of the Bible is about how God will bring back his intended purpose of the image bearers ruling the world. And that will happen in a resolution in Revelation chapter 20 to 22. And all the way from Genesis 4 to Revelation 19 is the outworking or the, the narrative plot of how God brings about this resolution. We saw that one of the corner pieces of our puzzle was Genesis 3.15, where it said, the promised seed of the woman would strike the serpent's head. And when the serpent's head is struck, then the rule of the world goes back to the image bearers of God. And in that verse, we also saw that there are essentially two teams. On the one hand, you have the seed of the woman, which include all who share the woman's desire for the promised seed to strike the serpent's head. And on the other hand, we have the team, which is known as the seed of the serpent. Now, we're not looking for baby snakes. We are looking for all of those who share the serpent's desire to prevent the coming of the promised seed of the woman. And in Genesis, we followed the promised seed as it get past from generation to generation, it got all the way down to Abraham, and God would make a covenant with Abraham. And it promised three major things, land, seed, and blessing. And each of those three areas would later be amplified by another covenant. So in the land covenant, Deuteronomy 29 and 30, we saw that God had promised that Israel would not be able to fulfill the Mosaic covenant. And so according to that covenant, they would be dispersed from the land first into captivity in a single nation, and later dispersed among all the nations around the world. But even despite that disobedience and that dispersion, the land still belonged to them. And God promised that he would give them a circumcision of heart that would bring them back into the land, let them obey, and be blessed. In the Davidic covenant, which amplifies the seed promise, we saw that God promised a descendant of David 
an eternal throne, reigning over an eternal kingdom. And so we're, that, that's part of the story we're looking for, is who is that descendant of David? And then we've looked at the new covenant, which amplifies the aspect of blessing. And we saw that the new covenant has many provisions, including physical, national, political, religious, and spiritual blessings. And what we've seen as we've studied these major covenants is that they are not yet fulfilled. So we are waiting for a point in the story when God will bring fulfillment to these promises. Now we also saw with King David, if we jump to the next slide, in 1 Chronicles that, uh, this is David speaking, he says, he, talking about the Lord, has chosen my son Solomon to sit on the throne of the kingdom over uh, kingdom of the Lord over Israel. Another way to say this on the next slide is, then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king instead of his father David. And so we have this merger of the throne of God, the throne of Yahweh, and the throne of Israel coming to one. And so we could say, well, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Israel have become one. And so Israel was supposed to be propagating the rule and the reign of God God's kingdom on the earth. But the question would come up when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and there's no more Israelite king, what happened to God's kingdom? What became of it? Will it come back? And the book of Daniel answers this question. It answers what happened to God's kingdom on earth and when will it come again? And so if, you'll, if you have your biophils, I would encourage you to turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. And just to set the scene here, Daniel is called by many the backbone of Bible prophecy. The backbone of Bible prophecy. And so it is uh, essential to any understanding of the, the future, of what God will do. It is essential to understanding the story of Scripture as well. And so it is well worth your time to do a detailed study of the book of Daniel. And what's happening in chapter 2, Daniel and his three friends have, were, were probably teenagers when they were taken from Israel, taken from Jerusalem. They were taken to Babylon, put through Babylonian University, totally indoctrinated, but they didn't fall for it. They stayed strong to their faith. And so they became some of the king's counselors, some of his wise men. And King Nebuchadnezzar, who was essentially ruling the, the empire, ruling the world at that, that time, he had a dream one night. And nobody could tell him what the dream was or what it meant, except for Daniel. So Daniel came to the king, and we'll pick up the story in chapter, chapter 2, verse 31. Chapter 2, verse 31. Let me read this for us. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. 
But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of men, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to yours shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain by no human hand, and it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So King Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and he, he had this image. We jump to the next slide. Oh, next one, I'm sorry. There we go. The slide, the, the, in his dream, he had a picture of a statue, a metallic statue with different kinds of metals. And in the interpretation, Daniel explains exactly what they are. Now, he will say to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. So we could say that the head of gold is the kingdom of Babylon. We jump to the first down there. So Babylon lasted a little less than a century. But the dream also revealed that after Babylon would come another kingdom. And this, we could say, was Medo-Persia. Uh, so the chest and arms of silver was the Medo-Persian Empire. And they, they conquered Babylon. And they, they had a huge empire as well, basically ruling the world. And they lasted until the mid-fourth century when Alexander the Great would come from Macedonia, from Greece, and he would be the belly and thighs of bronze. So that was the Greek empire that came forward. And they lasted until about 150 BC. And after them is the fourth kingdom, which we could say is Rome. There's one more click. There might be a footnote there. So, so Rome lasted from around 146 until 476 after Christ. But just as we see there are two legs in the statue, there were two branches of the Roman Empire, the Eastern and Western. And so the Western branch was centered in Rome, and they, they died out in the 470s, kind of dying a slow, painful death. But the eastern branch was centered in Constantinople, 
which is modern-day Istanbul in Turkey. And they lasted another thousand years until the, the 15th century. So the Roman Empire really had a, a lengthy, lengthy history, and, and that would be the fourth empire. Now there's a question about the feet, where we have iron mixed with clay. And so we'll say that's to be determined, uh, if we will, but we'll talk more about that in a bit. And in Luke 21, Jesus will talk about the times of the Gentiles. Okay, the times of the Gentiles. Where, whereas before, there was the kingdom of Israel, which represented the kingdom of God on earth. When there's no more Israelite king, then comes the time of the Gentiles. And we, we kind of saw this, that in verse 37, Daniel was saying that you, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given power and might and glory and kingdom. And the language he uses of ruling over the children of men, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, that goes back to Genesis 1, where the image, of bearer, image bearers of God were to rule over the birds of the heaven, beasts of the fields, and so on. And so it's like the kingdom of God has been handed over to a pagan Gentile. And it's the times of the Gentiles. And it will go from empire to empire to empire until at last we get to the feet of iron and clay. Now, when it comes to interpreting Daniel chapter 2, surprise, Christians don't always agree. <laughs> but some things we do agree on are the first four kingdoms, representing Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. We also agree that the rock, uh, if we jump to the next slide, there should be a picture of this rock that comes and strikes the statue. We agree that the rock is Christ, and we agree that the great mountain that fills the earth is Christ's kingdom. Okay, so all Christians agree on these points. Where we disagree is on the identity of the statue's feet. What is the iron mixed with clay? What are the ten toes? And the second area of disagreement is the timing of the kingdom. Was the kingdom of God established at Christ's first coming? And is it now growing through the church? So as the church grows, is that growing the kingdom of God on the earth? Or, uh, and this is the, the second view, the one that I take, is that the kingdom will be established at the Lord's second coming. And so we would say the church is not the kingdom, but we are looking forward to the coming kingdom. Now a few points in, in favor of this future kingdom view. The ten toes represent a form of the Roman Empire that we have never seen before. So they've never had ten kings ruling simultaneously. And as the feet grow out of the legs, uh, we might say that the feet are essentially Rome part two, or some reconstituted form that, uh, of the Roman Empire that we would expect to arise out of Europe. Also, historically, we know that Rome was not destroyed suddenly and cataclysmically by the coming of the church. In fact, the Roman Empire persecuted the church for centuries uh, and, and lasted uh, well into the church, church's history. Also, if the first four kingdoms were earthly, political, terrestrial kingdoms, Daniel doesn't make any mention of a sudden change to a kingdom that is only spiritual. And so we might assume that the, the kingdom, the stone that becomes a mountain that fills the earth, is likewise 
an earthly, political, and spiritual kingdom. Furthermore, we, we note that the building of the church is not that of a sudden mountain that fills the earth. Rather, the church, we, we find in Ephesians 2, that Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles, the prophets are the foundation of the church, and then we are like living stones being built layer by layer. And we've been growing throughout all of church history. Also, in Revelation chapter 5, we've got a slide for this, it will say this, you have made them into a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will, notice the future tense, they will reign upon the earth. Now, in Revelation 5, the church has already been taken to heaven, all of, all of the church. And so, still future to the churches going to heaven is the reigning on the earth. And so it seems that this reign, this kingdom, is yet future. And... If we think of the, the total narrative of scripture, if we jump ahead to the next slide, it is always God's desire, has been God's desire, for his image bearers to rule the world. Now what, what happens with the, this image bearing idea, we saw when we were in Genesis that when Noah and his family got off the ark, they suffered a loss of image bearing capacity. All humans are image bearers of God, but to differing degrees of capacity. And there was a loss after the flood. And what happens in the New Testament is Paul will tell us in Colossians 1 and 2 Corinthians 4 that Christ is the image of God. So Christ is the perfect image bearer. And Paul will also tell us in Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 3 that we as the church are being conformed into the image of Christ. But that's an ongoing process in this life. And when we're glorified, when we're in our resurrection bodies, that, that's, that will be a huge jump from where we are now. And so we will more fully be able to reflect the image of God. And so it's in our resurrection state that we will come back to earth and we will rule upon the earth with Christ in his kingdom. And so for all these reasons, I, I believe the kingdom is yet future and that the stone that we saw, the striking the statue, that is really what Genesis 3.15 is talking about. The promised seed will strike the serpent's head, destroying his kingdom. No trace of it ever left. Right? It'll be like the chaff that's blown away in the wind. No hint of it. And then comes the kingdom of God. Well, let's jump ahead a couple of pages to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel is not done with telling us about the future. And let me read the first three verses of chapter 7 for us. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, now Belshazzar was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, so considerable time has gone by from the first vision. Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. I think we've got a slide for this, for these four beasts. So the first one, Daniel will describe as a lion, verse 4. The second one, verse 5, will be like a bear. The third will be like a leopard, in verse 6. And in verse 7, it says this about the fourth beast. After this, 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, one of the wonderful things about the Bible, we get these strange visions, but if we just keep reading, oftentimes it gives us the interpretation. So just jump ahead to verse 16 and 17, and that's where we get the understanding. So at the end of verse 16, it says this, So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. So Daniel has just had a vision that is parallel to Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And we might say that in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, this, this shiny statue, precious metals, that is man's view of man's kingdoms. It's precious metal, it's valuable, it's shiny. But God's view of man's kingdom, they're, they're like beasts, they're these nasty beasts. And we're waiting for them to go away and be replaced by the eternal kingdom. So returning back to chapter 8, picks up here. I considered the horns. Uh, I was talking about the ten horns, which is actually parallel to the ten toes back in chapter 2. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Verse 9, and I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and his wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came down uh, from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then, because the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. By the way, that's one of the favorite titles that Jesus gives to himself, son of man. He's referring to this passage. And he came to the Ancient of Days, which is God the Father. And it was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now this little horn that comes up is commonly called by Christians by, by the title Antichrist. The Bible never actually gives him that name of Antichrist, but it is so such a popular and common term that I'm, I'm obliged to follow it. <laughs> but the Bible will call him the little horn, and the beast, and, and a few other terms. And he, apparently, out of this future Roman Empire that has ten kings ruling, he will come up, so he's not one of the first ten, but he will destroy three of the ten, and then become the ruler over them all. And what we find here 
starting in verse 9, is there's this court scene of God that the Ancient of Days, that the, the Son of Man come, and they will judge this little horn. They will judge the Antichrist. And then the kingdom will be given eternally to the Son and eternally to the saints. So let's pick it up in verse 18. So after these four great beasts, uh, in verse 17, verse 18, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. So that's happening after this judgment seat. In verse 19, I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke its feet, and stamped what was left of its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. So we have this little horn, this Antichrist, who is prevailing over the saints, who is defeating them in battle, but verse 22, that happens until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So I think what we're seeing here is that the serpent of old and the serpent seed, they win until the very end. They have the upper hand. And, you know, I think that our brother Sundi from India was telling me a couple days ago about in Manipur, in India, hundreds of Christians have just been killed recently, martyred for their faith. I had also read how over in Nigeria, thousands of Christians, thousands of our brothers and sisters were killed uh, at the hands of Muslim extremists. And, and that's the reality. That has been the history of the seed of the woman right from the time of Cain and Abel, is that we are being killed. And, and that will continue uh, until the time of the end. Uh, but unfortunately, it's going to get worse. Uh, verse 23 in chapter 7 talks about this. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the other kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, trample it down, and break it to pieces. Now that's a very important verse that tells us what the kingdom of the Antichrist will be like. I think it's painting a picture of absolute tyranny, absolute control over the world that will be terrible. Uh, if we all think back to 2020, 2021, during the times of COVID, when we felt the, the oppressiveness of all the rules, that's just a, a shadow of what is coming under the reign of Antichrist, where there will be supreme control uh, of the world. So it'll be a very, very disastrous time. Well, verse 24, continuing on, as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. So that's still talking about the, the Antichrist, the, the little horn, once again. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High. So again, this having authority, having power over the saints, and shall think to change times in the law. And they, talking about the saints once again, 
they shall be given into his hand for a time, two times, and half a time. I believe that time, times, and half a time, that's referring to the final three and a half years of this age. That after the church is gone, there's a seven-year period of intense tribulation when the Antichrist will rise to power, his kingdom will fill the earth, and the last three and a half years of that will be the worst time in human history imaginable. But after that, we have good news. Verse 26. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be annihilated and destroyed forever. Good news. Good news. Verse 27. Then the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, and his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So what's interesting is three times in this chapter we have the timing given that there's the reign of this little horn, reign of the Antichrist. Then there's this time of judgment, this court scene. And then we have the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, we don't know it's the name Jesus at this point in the story, but that's where it's going. This is the Son of Man that it's talking about here. So if we could just summarize the order of events that will happen in the future, there will be a 10 king empire that will rule the world. And out of that will arise this little horn. He will wipe out three of those kings and ultimately take control of them all. Uh, he will persecute the saints with power, uh, wear them out, as this text says. When we jump to the book of Revelation, we find that he and his cohorts are drunk with the blood of the saints. So there will be a terrible time of tribulation when believers are slaughtered like lambs. So that's coming, then the persecution of the saints. Then we have the court scene of God, where the Ancient of Days takes his seat, the Son of Man comes, the, the little horn is judged, the beast is judged, and the kingdom after that is given to the saints. And that's Back in chapter 2 of Daniel, that's the stone that strikes the kingdom, fills the whole earth. And so, in terms of what we're thinking about in the kingdom of God, we might say that the kingdom of God is physical, it is political, and it is spiritual. It is something that we are looking for. We are waiting for Christ's second coming, that he will fulfill it. It comes after the destruction of all the world empires. We find uh, in chapter 2 that there's no trace of the world empires left. They, they blow away like chaff in the wind. And that's when the promised seed will strike the serpent. It's the end of his kingdom, right? the end of the serpent's kingdom. That's, that's where we want to be. And after all these things, then will come the kingdom of Christ, it will be established on the earth, it will be given to the saints, given to the believers. And uh, I've made the argument that the kingdom of God is not the same thing as the church. So there, there are two different things. In fact, uh, a couple of downsides to thinking that the church is the kingdom. Uh, when the church thinks that it is the kingdom, it tends to try to take political power. 
And so we have this unnatural merger of religion and politics. And if you want the perfect example of this, look no further than the medieval Roman Catholic Church, where you had popes who were appointing kings and emperors. Why? Because the church was higher than nations, higher than kings. And it was an absolute disaster, wasn't it? It was a disaster for the world. It was a disaster politically and spiritually for the church. Another downside to thinking that the kingdom is the church is prosperity gospel theology. Now, I'm not saying that everybody who thinks the kingdom is now is a prosperity theologian, but everyone who's a prosperity theologian thinks the kingdom is now. And there's a logical connection because if indeed the kingdom is now and we are sons and daughters of the king, why should I not be healthy and wealthy and successful in everything? Maybe I should have that. I should be ruling and reigning right now. And so there's a logical connection uh, between those thoughts. Another problem of thinking that the church is the kingdom is that it robs the church of the blessed hope that we have, the blessed hope of Christ's second coming. Titus 2.13 says that the blessed hope is the coming of the Lord. But if we think the kingdom is now, and we think that we're busy building the kingdom, the church can, can and, and historically has done this, we get sidelined. We get focused on social progress, on moral reformation, rather than building disciples, evangelism, building up the church. And so we understand that, that we are not bringing the kingdom to earth. Only Christ can do that. We understand that when the king comes, that's when the kingdom comes. And that's what we're waiting for. But until then, we also understand that we are on the losing side. We are a pilgrim people. We are a little flock. We are the sheep among the wolves. You could say among the serpents, if you like. The serpent still has power, and he, he is and he will prevail over the saints. That's what God's prophetic word tells us will happen. But is there any good news in all of this? It can be a downer to hear these things, but indeed there is a good news. If you fast forward just to Daniel chapter 12, a couple of pages ahead of where we were, Daniel chapter 12, let me read verses 1 to 3. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has, char has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. That's talking about the tribulation time at the end. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. An angel spoke those words to Daniel. And it's almost as if he was telling Daniel, look, Daniel, we have these Gentile kingdoms coming. You're not going to live long enough to enter the kingdom. But you can hope in the resurrection. And when you get resurrected, then you will inherit the kingdom. You will shine like the stars. And so part of the solution of Genesis 3.15, if we jump to the next slide, 
part of the solution of striking the serpent, as, as we zoom out to our big picture, we have the covenants that are awaiting fulfillment. We have, as we've seen in Daniel, we have the kingdom which comes after the time of the Gentiles that is, is going to be fulfilled. And my argument is that in Revelation 20 and going forward, that is when the covenants are fulfilled. That is when the kingdom comes and everything is set right and the hero's desire of image bearers ruling the world comes to pass. So it's coming, it, it's hopeful. And uh, on the next slide, uh, this is what the New Testament will say about us in James chapter two. Did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? So you and I, if you're a believer, we are heirs of the kingdom. We have not inherited it just yet, but we will in the future. Right? There's a difference between being an heir and receiving the inheritance, and we want to understand that. So you and I, uh, we are not Daniel. The book of Daniel was not written directly to us as an audience, but our situation is fairly similar in a number of respects. We, we are not in the kingdom. We are still in the times of the Gentiles. And we await the coming kingdom of Christ. But like Daniel, we have hope in a future kingdom. We have hope in the resurrection and being brought into the kingdom by God's mercy. So there's a glorious future hope that awaits believers. And I will say, this kingdom is something you want to be in. Absolutely. It, it is worth it no matter the cost. It is worth your, losing your family, losing your job, losing your very life. It, if becoming a believer mean, means giving up these things, it is worth it. There is infinite value in inheriting the kingdom. Well, you might ask, how do I inherit the kingdom? Answer, by faith. By faith. Put your faith and your trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That he died on the cross as a substitute for your sin. That he was buried. That three days later he rose from the grave and ascended to heaven. And if you believe that, he promises to grant you resurrection life and bring you into the kingdom. And so if you are in, in a place where you're not sure what you think about this, or maybe you, you want to believe, but you don't know how, or you have questions, feel free to please come talk with me after the service, or call me or WhatsApp me on the, the church phone number, and I would be very happy to talk with you about these things. Well, let's pray, and then we'll invite Lauren back up. Our glorious God, you have an amazing plan for the future. You know the end from the beginning. And you are bringing about your purposes, and your plan according to your ways and your timing. We don't exactly know the timing, but we're thankful that you have re revealed through your prophets so much that we can learn about and have hope in the future and the hope of what you will bring about on the earth. Lord, how we long for your coming. We long that you would come back, that you would set things right on the earth and bring about righteousness and justice to this entire planet. We thank you, Lord, for the words written by the prophet Daniel, for the hope and the encouragement 
that it gives us. May we all look to you in hope, in the hope of resurrection life and granting entrance to the kingdom. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.